Welcome to Media and Monuments, presented by Women in Film and Video in Washington, D.C. Media and Monuments is conversations featuring industry pros speaking on a wide range of topics of interest to media makers. Welcome. I am your host, Tara Jabari, for this episode where I speak with my cousin who professionally goes by Malakoff Kowalski, a music composer who also introduced me to a previous guest, Sarah Lisa Volm. Please enjoy our catching up and hearing about his process of creating musical scores for the film projects he has worked on. Welcome, Malakoff Kowalski. Thank you for coming on Media and Monuments. Hello. Very happy to be here. It's an overseas call. Can you hear me well? Yes, I can hear you just fine. Can you tell the listeners where you're recording from? I'm in Berlin, Germany, the former western part of the city. Not too far from the wall, though, the former wall. My studio is in the former east. So that's where I am, the old continent. And I'm uh, recording from Chicago in the United States. But full disclosure, two things that I want to share with our listeners. One is that we know each other. We're cousins. Right. And we are going by our professional names, but we know each other from our family names. That is true. So that's why it's taking me a while to say Malakoff. You can also just say not... Kowalski. It's more fun. Oh, Kowalski. Yeah, I can because say Because that. that's how my artist yeah. name came up. They used to call me Kowalski when I was a teenage kid. My boys in the band in Hamburg, where I grew up, they thought it was funny to call a Persian kid who's called Aram yeah. or Aram to call him Kowalski. They were a little drunk, whatever, and they thought it was funny. They were cracking up and it just stayed because it put them in a good mood. So they kept calling me Kowalski. And so that's how it became an artist name. And then at some point I added the Malakoff. There you go. You're a music composer. Yes. And you connected me to Sarah Lisa, a German filmmaker. Thank you for that because I got to talk to her and that episode got released earlier. And I thought it would be nice to talk to music composers. And you're one that has been in the industry for a while and in different aspects, but also in the continent of Europe because you work not just in Germany, correct? Well, it's mainly Germany. It's starting to spread a little bit, but it's basically happening within Germany, Austria, Switzerland. So I wanted to understand how did you get involved in music and then in composing for film or screen-based media? Well, my mother's a pianist, and so I started playing the piano at the age of four, I believe. But I was a horrible student, and I believe I stopped around the age of 12 or so. And I wanted to play the guitar. I wanted to sing. I got away from the classical thing, and I loved The Doors and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and all that. And I started a band. And so I got into the whole band, songwriting, rock and roll thing. And that stayed for a while. I made a few records. And then I met this film director who just passed away. He's called Klaus Lemke. And that's also how I know Sarah Lisa, because she used to make movies with him as an actress. And he listened to one of my rock and roll pieces and really liked it. 
and made a music video for it. It's called Andere Leute, which translates as other people. That was a German prog rock, kraut rock, psychedelic type thing with German lyrics. So he made a video and then I sent him a piece of music that was around the age of 30, I believe. A piece of piano music that I had recorded with a musician from New York, Hanan Rubinstein, or Rubinstein, that I was working with at that time. And this director, he loved this piano piece because it was something that really put him in a certain mood that just excited him. And I, on the other hand, didn't know what to do with the piece because it was just a piece of solo piano music, very calm, something like a little intermezzo or like a little prelude type thing, classical music, basically. And I didn't really didn't know what to do with it. But I met this director, so I thought could be something for a movie. And he loved it so much that he put it in his movie that he was editing at that time, which was called Dancing with Devils. And the edit was pretty much done already. And he it was one or two days before the final mastering. So that's not really a stage in which you still change things, you know, that's pretty much done at that point but he took that piece and he put it in the movie four or five times because it was so important and so special to him and so that's how i got into the movie thing after that we made more movies and he asked me to do more score music actually for him and until his death recently i think we made about 10 or 12 movies i lost track wow but that's how i got into that he saw music in me or he saw an artist in me that at that time I hadn't been and I also hadn't seen in myself. So I got away from the songwriting thing. I got away from the regular ways of making music, writing songs with an intro and a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus and a C part, you know, three, four, five mm -hmm. minute songs. And I got into the discipline of miniatures. So for a movie, you can just compose a 30-second piece or a one-minute piece that doesn't really have a structure, but it's got some magic. Mm -hmm. And that was really that was really inspiring. It was relief from this whole pop and mainstream songwriting world. It's not about creating a piece that's going to run in the radio. Mm -hmm. It's about creating a little theme, a little something. I started whistling. I started playing the guitar. I started playing the accordion, the harmonica. And everything was just really loose. It was not about getting something tight, which is what you try to do in the pop world. It was about making it all loose. It was always meant to sound like a drunk sailor who's just walking back <laughs> home from a tavern and going back to his boat. So everything had to be a little out of tune. He, he loved a rough sound. He loved the hiss on my recordings. And that was all great. That was so much, uh, that was speaking to me so much more than anything I had done before. Since I have no background in music, but one of my favorite things to listen to when I'm just wanna, 
walk around the neighborhood. I'll listen to musical scores of films that I really love. One of my favorites is the musical score to the film Moonlight when I'm like kind of sad or melancholy. That movie that came out um, just a while I'm, ago, a while back. A couple of years ago, yeah. yeah. That was a great score. Love that score. It's, it's a beautiful score. And then when I want to go running, one of my favorite things to listen to is the scores of action films or action television shows. So the Bourne films, the Bourne Identity, or the show Alias, I will listen to those. So when you were describing about with the pop music, you have to have it about two and a half, three minutes, but like a film score, it's actually shorter. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Because some of these songs can be, or these musical pieces can be quite a long time, like seven minutes long. So how does that come about? Well, the thing is that when you record a piece of film score music, you might do it just for the scene. So you might record or you might write a piece that seems like a big thing, longer, bigger thing, almost like a symphony type thing. Um, But in the actual movie, you're just going to use one minute. So you create something that seems like a bigger thing, but you actually only do maybe a minute because you do it just for the scene. And then it's faded out or cut, whatever happens in the movie. But on the other hand, you also want to release a score as a record. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you will either record a much longer version for the score but they're not going to use it because they only use the first minute or so. But the actual recording, you make it much longer so it can go on a record at some point. Or, which happens very often, is that little bite that you record for the movie, afterwards you turn into a bigger thing which you put on a record. So what you hear on a soundtrack record for a movie is not necessarily what you've already heard in the movie. The versions you hear Mm. on a soundtrack album sometimes are much longer and sometimes they're also the same composition but a new recording. If you listen closely, music like um, Henry Mancini's movie scores for the Pink Panther, for example, are all released as records. But when you listen to the recording that's being used in the film, the actual edit, they're a bit rougher. They're not the same performances. The mix is different. And then you listen to the record, it's the same piece, but it just sounds a little more polished. It's made for a record. So sometimes it's a re-recording from the same artist with the same orchestra, but it's going to sound a little different. And that was in the old days. Now, I think we tend to do scores that are being used in the movie and being used on a record at the same time. But still, the seven-minute version that you'll hear on a soundtrack album is not necessarily happening in the movie. Got it. And then sometimes it's actually upsetting when you're doing the recording for a movie and you don't have time because lots of these scores are being produced under severe pressure. They need something just overnight Mm. and, you know, whatever the reasons are sometimes or, or most of the time you're working under severe stress. So Mm. you just want to get that scene right. 
And that's why sometimes you'll just do that little bite that you'll actually need in the movie editing. But while you do it, you're upset because you're thinking, while I'm doing this, I should actually do a full version because who knows, maybe they're going to use it at some other point in another part of the movie. Or when you put out a record, you need a longer version. What are you going to do with the 30-second thing? Yeah. But you don't have the time to do it. So sometimes you're stuck with that little bite. You also worked in different countries, correct? You worked with a film starting Alicia Vikander and Eva Green, and that wasn't a German film. Right. It, it was with those two and Charlotte Rampling by Lisa Langseth. That was something that occurred a few years ago. I did two piano pieces for that movie. One of the pieces ended up being on my record, on my solo record, my first piano. It's called Euphoria Lobster and Champagne. That's an example for one of these occasions when you do something for a scene and it ends up turning into something else. They, I believe they didn't use that piece in the movie. And I did another piece, but then this thing happened to be something for a solo record. What I started making in film scores had a very strong effect on my records after that because... Uh, on my solo records, the first solo record that I made after this transition into movie scores was called Kill Your Babies, and it had the subtitle Film Score for an Unknown Picture. So I made a record imagining a movie that didn't exist and so it had lots of miniatures in it and i was entirely free because it was declared as a film score mm -hmm. so i could basically do what i wanted on that record which was very liberating and after that i made a record called i love you which also contained some pieces that i had done for movies originally and then Either they had been used or they hadn't, I don't know, like you lose track what's from where. The records always inspire the scores. And the scores always inspire the records. So it's always going back and forth. And then there's also theater scores that I make. Mm. So it's these three things. It's my solo records, the film scores, and the theater scores. And all three always work in this triangle. So sometimes a film score that had never been used ends up in a theater play. And then something I do in a theater play 
I might also use on a solo record. I believe the opening of the record "I Love You" was something I had made for a piece called "Assassinate Assange." Angela Richter, German theater director, had interviewed Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London many times, and from those transcriptions of the interview, she created a theater play. And I made the score for that, and something I made for that ended up being the opening for my record called "I Love You." And so it's always going back and forth, everything. And frankly, I sometimes even forget what's from what, but it doesn't really matter because it's all my music, so I can kind of do what I want with it. But it's just funny when you listen to it. My solo records are almost like diaries.、Mm-hmm. They always remind me of certain periods. They have titles that work like diary entries. So I'll listen to a record and I'll know, oh, that was that time. This is what happened then. I don't. Write diaries, so my records have that purpose for me. You also work sometimes in Los Angeles, so in the United States. Have you seen a difference between working with these different countries when it comes to music? Well, every music that you write and record belongs somewhere. So、mm. this record, "Kill Your Babies," from two thousand twelve. Sounds very European to me. It sounds like Berlin. It sounds like Paris. It might even sound a bit Russian. It might sound、mm. a little Middle Eastern. And I remember, I, I took it with me to LA when I was working there for a while, and I realized this record doesn't really work in LA. When I'm in LA, this music doesn't really work for me. And then while I was there. I started working on this record called "I Love You," which sounds very much like LA, and it also started with actually a piece that I made for a movie called "What Was It?" Forgot the name, but it was also for this director Klaus Lemke, and he loved the idea that I was in LA, and he said, "Can't you just record something that sounds like LA?" I was there with a band called Zweiraum Wohnung, very German. Name, electro pop band, and we had this beautiful house that they had rented, and we were working on their record. At the same time, I was working on my own things, and I started making music that sounded very much like LA, and it sounded like a movie in color, actually. Whereas、mm. "Kill Your Babies" was a black and white movie from the '60s, old. With the record that has scratches and everything, and then "I Love You" really sounded like blue and purple and the sunset and the desert and the palms, rich colors, you know. So every city and every country has its own sound. Then I made a piano record. Called my first piano, which I recorded in Berlin, and it sounds very much like Berlin. But I took it to New York to mix it with Hanan Rubinstein that I just mentioned earlier, 
And so that record to me has this whole New York feel to it. It has a very rich sound. It's got this old American analog sound. So every country and every city will influence the way you receive your own music and that makes you do things and that makes you leave out things. My newest record that came out is called Piano Aphorisms. That's something that happened entirely in Berlin. I wrote it there, recorded it there, and it was mixed and mastered there. I guess it sounds pretty German, that record. does sound very German, that record. It's just, it's a piano sonata, a very serious, complicated music, I would say. <laughs> I really went away from the miniatures. So over the course of time, I made more records that sounded like film scores, and I made more film scores that actually sounded like records. So that's also something that happens with what I do here. Film directors or theater directors like my things because they also sound like actual records they sound like music that you will know from a record so i don't really do those stereotype score things that people do who are just constantly doing one more movie after the other as a film composer who's just constantly doing one score after the other you'll start using some tricks here and there cheap tricks you start working with cliches and you'll also just do things that people want from you. With me, if a director has the guts to ask me to do a score for them, it means they know my solo music from my records and they know that I'm a little different, that I don't really compromise that much. I'm very strict in my genre rules. There's a lot of things that I absolutely do not do, that I strongly condemn artistic things, you know, style, sound, writing, attitude. There's a lot of things that, that I strongly, let's put it mildly, strongly dislike, very mildly. <laughs> and so if a director comes to me and wants me to do a score, they know that it's going to be something else than the regular stuff. Because I'm also not capable to do just anything you want. You buy Kowalski for a score, you get Kowalski. And so they kind of like that in their movies, that their scores sound like a record. And when I do a record, people who talk about them, journalists or also listeners, they'll say, it's so cinematic what you do in your solo music. And so it's always going back and forth. And one's good for the other. And when I do one, I always have a little vacation from the other, which is good because I tend to be very strict with these things. And so a little vacation from myself is always very welcome. Yeah.
Do you have any words of advice for filmmakers, whether it be at the director, a producer and stuff, but you kind of answered it when they come to you, they know your work and that you have these rules for yourself. Well, not everybody's capable of applying those rules and not everybody is necessarily a solo artist at the same time. Mm -hmm. So when I did my first movie scores and theater scores, I had already released two records as an independent artist. So there was already something there. Some people just start out without being someone and they're just workhorses mm. who just get into it and just do one movie after the other and it's just what they've been building up for years. That's a different situation. So you can't really apply my rules to everyone else because I'm not the typical career guy. And what I can recommend is just something that always applies in my eyes or in my ears yeah I was just thinking <laughs> to, to put a little better I always believe in in something that I can buy if someone shows me a movie with dialogues that I don't buy because either they're written badly or played badly or what if it's just not right I'll have mm. a very hard time and I also try to make music, whether it's a score or a record, that I'm going to buy myself. I have to believe what I'm doing there. I think that's a good rule or like a good compass. If you do that, you're always going to be more or less okay. And I think it's both good for the commercial aspects because if you do something that's not really believable that's not that's that doesn't have a true essence i also don't really think it's it's going to be commercially successful unless you're doing something that is just entirely you know if you're into doing trash of course there's other rules but mm -hmm. let's say we're talking about more or less serious music with good taste that kind of stuff then i believe is good for the commercial perspectives of your work but most of all, it's good for you as an artist. If you do things that you don't believe yourself, you're going to fail at some point because mm -hmm. you're just surrounded with lies. There's so many artists that I know, sadly, or let's say a few, anyways, you meet them, you know, you run into them. Mm. They don't really listen to their own music. They don't really like what they do. Mm. And I always wonder why, if you have the possibility to re release records, to make scores, to play concerts, why don't you do something that you actually like? Why don't you use that privilege and do something that's good? And fortunately, I know a lot of artists who actually do like what they do. Those I know as well. They're the majority. And they also do other things. They're writers, directors, of course, or visual artists, dancers. Lots of people who, who really believe what they do. They do something that they actually mean and buy. And those are the artists that survive over the course of time. There's a documentary about Leonard Cohen where someone filmed him during a European tour in the 70s. It was just released a few years ago because Leonard Cohen didn't want it to be out. But then at some point, I think he allowed it. And so it came out very late. And 
the guy asks him backstage, what's the meaning of success? And he thinks about it, takes a little smoke, and he says, survival. And I think what he means, or at least in my eyes, what he means is you release something, you write something, and you feel like doing something else again. You feel like there's more to say, and therefore you survive as an artist. Of course, you also got to pay your bills and you got to write some invoices, <laughs> but uh, that comes with the good stuff that you make. But survival is is probably the only good meaning of success because everything else comes and goes. Commercial success, you might have a number one out and the next record just fails miserably. You might do a great movie and the next one is just going to be critically acclaimed, but no one's going to watch it. These things happen. Sometimes you just get good reviews and critics love what you write. I mean, what you've done. They write great things, but you don't really like it yourself. Like, this is like all these things, they're all very relative and they're all very much in the moment. And you can't really influence them too much. But finishing something and then waking up the next day and thinking there's more to say. That's the real gold. That's when you know that you're going to survive. You're going to be doing this for a while, hopefully. If you just keep wanting more. Yeah. You got to want something. That's my advice here. You got to want something. The originally, you were saying, you know, you as a listener, like, think of what would you want to hear? Oh, yeah, of course. I would want to produce music that I would like to listen to myself. If I was a director, probably I'd strive for movies that I want to watch myself. Yeah. Write things that I want to read myself. It's probably the most important thing. Anything, um, links or albums or anything like that? Well, if you want to listen to something, it's, there's a lot of stuff on Spotify and Apple Music everywhere. All my records are there. Some of the scores are there. Um, and there's a website called malakoffkowalski.de, and that'll basically take you everywhere. Okay. It's got some music there. It's got some videos there. Some of the scores that have not been released as records are there. Little Bandcamp players, so you can stream it there. I guess the website is a good source, even though most of the stuff is in German, but it has a link that says music. Okay. <laughs> so just go for the music and uh, skip through the players and listen to some music so you'll know what we're actually talking about. So the listeners will know if they actually believe in what I put out there, because ultimately it's all fine and good if you believe it yourself, but of course, you do it for the listeners. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. I don't believe in these artists who say, I do everything just for myself. Y you need the audience. Mm -hmm. y you need a little bit of applause. I mean, maybe you don't need stadiums, but you do need a little bit of applause, a little bit of recognition, a little bit of acclaim, you know. So, yeah. Please go. Please go there. Listen to it and um, and enjoy. Well, thank you so much for coming on thank you for introducing us to sarah lisa's work and yeah 
Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Media and Monuments, a service of Women in Film and Video in Washington, D.C. Please remember to review, rate, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. For more information about WIF, please visit our website at wif as in Frank, v as in victor.org.